Welcome back to Sophomore Lit, where we reread your 10th grade reading list. I'm your host, John McCoy, and with me is first-time co-host Gregory Freed. Hey, Greg. Hello, John. It's wonderful to be part of this. Well, uh, Greg is someone I know in real life. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience and say a little bit about uh, what it is you do? Well, I am a professor of philosophy at Boston College, where I have been for the last four years. And before that, I was at Suffolk University in Boston. And before that, at Cal State University, Los Angeles. And before that, I was at Boston University, where I taught the Epic of Gilgamesh for six years uh, when I taught in the core curriculum there. Uh, I usually give a date here. I think this dates back to what, 1300, 1300 BCE or something like that? Or, or... And there's traditions of this story that go back even earlier so that it is, as as far as I understand, the very first story that we have recorded uh, that was produced by human beings. Ancient Mesopotamian culture is the oldest uh, culture that we know of, of humans maintaining continuous habitation. This epic, at least in this form that we're reading, is is fairly late into that. Um, for example, ancient Egyptian history, as far as we know, goes back to around 3000 BCE. And this is, you know, much, much newer than this. But as Greg says, it's largely considered the, the, the first, um, the first story, although as you said, it's a collection of earlier Sumerian stories. Um, I don't want to get too deep into the reads here because one of the things that happened was when I went around asking uh, possible co-hosts to be on this show and uh, talk about the Epic of Gilgamesh, I got no takers. And most people said, I don't know that I have anything I could say about that. They they were treating it like it was some sort of an unapproachable uh an unapproachable work. And, and if this podcast is anything, it's about saying, yeah, everybody gets to read world literature. You don't have to be an expert. And I'm not an expert on ancient Mesopotamian literature. When I taught this book in the core curriculum at, at BU, I came to it out of a training in philosophy. And so I came to it fresh as a, as a young teacher and so I think it's really important that we all, well, how can I put it, take the right to read these ancient texts uh, as if for the first time and without any specialized knowledge of them. And I think that's very important. And I think that David Ferry's rendition of the epic is a beautiful way for the modern reader to read it. I think purists might have a, have complaints about David Ferry's rendering because it is a rendering. It, he calls it a rendering, not a translation, because he has used his own skill as a poet to produce it in the form of a, an epic that can be read by a modern reader. 
And I think it's important to underline that David Ferry is himself a great poet. And he has also translated the works of Horace, the the Roman poet, as well as the Aeneid. Uh, and, and so he is an extremely skilled translator who understands how to make a poem live for a contemporary audience. And I think that we all have the right to think in those terms about even the most ancient texts. This epic survives in the form of clay tablets um, written in cuneiform in Akkadian is the language that, that was used. This is sort of a collection of the greatest hits about Gilgamesh. The Gilgamesh stories exist in other forms in earlier uh, versions, but they were all sort of self-contained little stories. And this was an attempt to put them all together into something like a uh, uh, a continued narrative um and it, it exists in uh what is it uh 11 12 12 tablets mm-hmm. tablet 12 doesn't really fit uh it's kind of a, another story entirely that that doesn't make sense narratively with the rest of the stories so already when you when you approach something like this you got to you got to make choices if you're going to if you're going to make a modern translation. You got to make choices. Now, I actually read this as a kid. Um, I was, you know, a precocious child, and I, I read this in the old Mentor pay, paperbacks. Uh, it was a, a translation by Herbert Mason, and that was also a free translation. And I and I may be wrong because my, my memory is faulty and I don't have a copy of that, but I believe that Mason attempted to sort of cram uh tablet twelve into the narrative of the uh the rest of the 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 epic. Um Ferry doesn't do that. He 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 puts it on as like a little uh, appendix. A version that I have here is the one by N.K. Sanders, and it is also a free version uh, that tries to encapsulate other materials. But the way I like to think about a text like this is as if... uh, some future civilization after ours had destroyed itself and left only remnants. They came across the DVDs of the various Batman movies or the various Superman movies. And over the last 30, 40, 50, 60 years that there have been shows about these superheroes, the stories have been retold in many different ways. And if all you had were these fragments, uh, you would be challenged to put together one unified story about these figures, even though there was a kind of coherent cultural context in which the different versions of the of the story of Batman or Superman was put together over the generations. So if you were just going by one fragment here, one fragment there, it wouldn't seem coherent. 
But if you were really fully enmeshed in that cultural context, you would understand the larger cultural conversation about, well, why is it interesting or important to retell the story in this way rather than in that way? And that's a permission that we give in our own culture to movie makers, uh, to uh, producers of series about these figures, that it's okay to retell the story with new twists and turns. There are limits to what we'll, we'll tolerate, but there is that flexibility there. And I think that's what you see in a tradition around something like the Epic of Gilgamesh, where there are many different versions. Yeah, I like what you say about Batman, because when I was reading this through this time, it occurred to me that from the very first stories we ever told about heroes, we had um, sort of revisionist takes on them. Exactly. Gilgamesh is the hero, but he's also not a great guy. Although there are many things that are admirable about him, the gods want to uh, put him back into his proper place as a human. He's the king of Uruk, and Uruk is a great city. It's a marvel of engineering for its time. That's what uh, the opening goes on and on about, is how marvelous Uruk is and how beautifully... uh, bejeweled it is uh and nonetheless um gilgamesh who uh was responsible for the building of the city is also a tyrant he's a person who pushes the citizens to work more than they should and he also basically uh rapes uh every young woman on her uh wedding night I'm going to read uh, from this passage. There was no withstanding the aura or power of the wild ox Gilgamesh. Neither the father's son, nor the wife of the noble, neither the mother's daughter, nor the warrior's bride was safe. And that's in the second passage of the first tablet. And there's a kind of chorus in the Epic of Gilgamesh of the old men of the city. And they say, is this the shepherd of the people? Is this the wise shepherd protector of the people? And they complain to the gods about this, this man who's, who cannot be with, withstood. He has this terrible aura and power and it's it's not clear whether he's just so seductive that no no woman can resist him and apparently no no father's son either it's not clear what that even means uh and when enkidu first encounters gilgamesh he stands on the threshold of a doorway to the bridal chamber of a young woman who is being married and denies Gilgamesh entrance. And they wrestle and they fight and Gilgamesh defeats Enkidu. But he doesn't go back and have sex with this man's uh, soon-to-be wife. And I should, I think it's also worth pointing out that this uh, droit de seigneur, this right of the Lord, 
is a is a fairly common thing in monarchical societies that the king has how would I say it? The rights of first refusal whenever any young woman is being married to be the first to spend the night with her. Uh, that was something that the that the feudal lords of Europe often claimed as their prerogative. And in the ancient world, that right was connected to a ceremonial right uh, that the kings were meant to perform as the, how would I put it? It, it? They had a ritual role as the male god of fertility in counterpoint to the female fertility goddesses who would restore life to the earth every year. And so the king would undergo ritual marriages with the representatives of the earth goddess as a way of restoring life to the community. And that would be by having ritual sexual intercourse with the priestess of the goddess, but also that role was manifested in the king having sexual intercourse with the women who were about to be married as a kind of fertility rite. This poem is full of um, of sex rituals and sex magic, um, which uh, does permeate the, this culture. Uh, we, you've mentioned Enkidu. Enkidu is the uh, hairy wild man who is sent to Earth to be a damper on uh, on uh, Gilgamesh by the gods, and it's not exactly clear how he's going to do that at first. He's just out in the woods, uh, living like an animal, and uh, some shepherd sees him and comes into town at Uruk and says, hey, did you see this crazy guy out there in the woods? He's letting all the animals loose from my traps. I can't hunt them anymore. Gilgamesh sends a temple prostitute to to sleep with him just to sleep with enkidu that this is going to somehow um bring enkidu from the animal world into the human world and strangely enough it does she she goes out she sleeps with enkidu and enkidu stops behaving like an animal so there is this very strange power that that sex has and it's also i think to a modern uh reader a little shocking to think of this idea of temple prostitution women in uh, a religious context performing sexual rites or I, I as i understand it even in sumerian times women who were going to be married were supposed to go into the temple and there await someone to to sleep with them uh, and pay them money to be a prostitute for one for one night and then they could go off and live their lives it's a it's a crazy thing and it's not clear uh to even the experts whether it's true or not. There's there's some there's some uh, argument, as far as I understand, amongst people about whether this whether the record we get through these uh, tablets is 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 right, or whether there just was a unfortunate class of uh, sexual slavery. Um, 
people look at those story these stories uh, in the in the modern uh, through modern eyes and take from it what they want some people see the idea of uh, a temple prostitute as being sexually empowering and and other people see it as you know this is sexual slavery I, <laughs> I think you're right i think it's incredibly ambiguous and I, I think a modern reader will naturally f- feel ambivalent about the role of a temple prostitute, but I, I have no doubt that some of this was sexual slavery. On the other hand, just as in Greece, ancient Greece, it was possible for some women to overcome the intensely patriarchal society of that time by becoming powerful through their um, through their sexual uh, allure and through their intelligence. These were the women like um, the courtesan, the lover of Pericles, was somebody who became extremely powerful through developing these sexual partnerships with powerful men. And that was an, a route, an avenue to wealth and to power that was one of the very few that was open to women. The the temple prostitute, first of all, I should point out that it's the father of the shepherd who first suggests this idea to the shepherd. And, the, and then when the shepherd comes to Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh seconds the idea. So why? Why does the having sex with this woman have this magical effect on Enkidu? When we first meet Enkidu, he is a protector of the animals. He lives with the animals. He eats with the animals. And it's clear that it's, it's not the lions and the wolves that he's running with. It's, it's the, the plant-eating herbivores that he's, that he's living with. He eats their food. He feeds on the grasses. And he, unlike... Gilgamesh is a shepherd, a protector to those animals. So the, the, the chorus, the old men of the city had complained to the gods about Gilgamesh as not being a good shepherd. But Enkidu begins his existence as a good shepherd. But when he lies with the temple prostitute. He makes a kind of discovery. It's like that moment in the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve when the discovery of sexual desire opens their eyes to a new reality. And he recognized, well, the animals recognize that he's no longer one of them that he's somehow tied to the human community in a way that he wasn't before. And what's that symbolic of? Again, I'm not an expert, but it strikes me that the symbolism of that is that by entering into sexual relations, one is entering into the cycle of the human 
generation and human procreation and the need to sustain human families. And that need to sustain human families traditionally has meant exploiting animals for labor, for meat, uh, for milk. It's interesting that it's through a relationship with uh, the the temple prostitute, um, who, whose name is Shamhat, by the way. I should give, I should give her a name, um, although she's mostly referred to as the temple prostitute in the, in the uh, at least in the translation. Um, that it's 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 through relationship with other people that Enkidu becomes something else, and that is part of what he provides, I think, ultimately for Gilgamesh is a peer, someone who is in direct relationship with him. And when the, the two of them fight and Gilgamesh uh, does uh, conquer uh, Enkidu, but after that, Gilgamesh seems to be on better behavior, or at least he's turning his attentions towards doing acts of heroism. Now he wants to, he likes having Enkidu by his side. He wants to go off and like one of the first things they want to do is they're going to go off and uh, to this place called the Cedar forest. And they're going to just dis- destroy this uh, demon named Humbaba. Uh, and there's no real reason other than they want to gain fame and renown. Uh, Humbaba is, we're told has uh, what, like nine faces or something like that. And that he's, he's, he's presented as a monstrous creature, but it's not as though he were um, an imminent threat to uh, Urek or anything. It's just uh, Gilgamesh and Enkidu want to go out and, and, and get some glory. Um, so they, so, the, so they, they, they're, they're successful. One person who's most impressed with Gilgamesh's uh, deeds is the goddess Ishtar. Um, and, and this is another case where I feel this is a, in some ways, a revisionist uh, text because Ishtar or Inanna in her Sumerian name is probably the most central figure to Babylonic myths. There's there's uh, there's tons of myths around her. One of the most famous ones is 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 about Inanna in the underworld. She goes and has basically a a, a adventure that in many ways prefigures that of Orpheus. She has a sister Erishkigal who is the, the goddess of the underworld, who's their Hades character. Uh, when she wants Gilgamesh to sleep with her, Gilgamesh says thanks but no thanks. You know, everybody who hooks up with you ends up dead. Um, and 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 Ishtar is incensed and runs back to the pantheon of uh, of Babylonic gods and says, what are we going to do about it? They say, what do you want us to do? He's just telling the truth. And, and it's such a it's such a like a diss on this major figure. In fact, uh, Ishtar was the was the largest cult, cult goddess in Uruk. But I think it's really worth noticing that in the first tablet, uh, it says very early on that Gilgamesh built Uruk. He built the keeping place of Anu and Ishtar. And so 
even though he might diss Ishtar in the middle part portion of the text, by the end, when he comes back to Uruk after his transformative journey, he, he tells the boatman uh, who has brought him back, he says to him, study the brickwork. He's describing Uruk. Study the fortification. Climb the great ancient staircase to the terrace. Study how it is made. And this is all repeating the language in the first tablet, proclaiming the glory of Uruk. And he goes on about its glories. And then he says, uh, one league is the inner city. Another league is orchard. Still another, the fields beyond. Over there is the precinct of the temple, three leagues and the temple precinct of Ishtar. Measure Uruk, the city of Gilgamesh. So I have always thought that it's important that his last words is to give credit to the temple of Ishtar in, in this text. Humbaba was a, a, a demon of Ishtar's. She was the figure that he was indirectly confronting by confronting Humbaba. And she then sees him as incredibly magnificent and erotic. And he then refuses her, challenges her. And uh, the great uh classicist Greg Nage, uh, who is a, a a student of Greek myth, he always argued that the the Greek hero is defined in their heroism by a god who opposes them. And their fame and their glory is manifested through their confrontation with that god. And for Odysseus, it's Poseidon. Uh, for other gods, it's other figures. Uh, excuse me, for other heroes, it's other figures. And I think that Ishtar is, in fact, ultimately not being dissed by this legend. It's, in fact, that her authority over human life is being recognized by Gilgamesh. So the crucial question is, what is it that he, what is it that Ishtar represents that through this, uh, through his adventures, he comes to respect and understand? Well, one thing that, that, that always strikes me as hilarious uh, when I read this is <laughs> when, um, when Gilgamesh is first introduced and several times throughout the epic, he's referred to as uh, two thirds a God and one third a man. Yes. Uh, which is, which is, which is very funny because of course they, they didn't have any real sense of genetics at the time. And I think, I guess it makes sense that if you think that there was an offspring of uh, a mortal and an immortal, maybe the immortal would have the larger portion of that, of that offspring, you know, why not? But, but like the, um, the, the Greek heroes, he, 
exists in this space between mortality and immortality. Gilgamesh um, is going to die, though. There is a limitation to to Gilgamesh, and that's and part of what I think is happening at the beginning is Gilgamesh is living outside of his appropriate limitations. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing there, no one there to say no to him, um, and you know that's perhaps what Enkidu uh does you know he's a he's a friend who encourages him uh to acts of heroism but he's also there uh to remind uh Gilgamesh that he is no better than he ought to be um it's it is weird though about Ishtar because because after Ishtar gets um gets denied by by Gilgamesh she sends the bull of heaven to fight uh, uh Gilgamesh and Enkidu they slay it but uh after that uh, Gilgamesh actually yells to Ishtar you know if i could reach you i would tear you apart just like this bull that's Enkidu Enkidu says that yes and i think that's important because Enkidu is acting as much more of a defender of a friend and a defender of the city than he is acting in favor of just personal glory. So his rage is against Ishtar as having attacked his friend and causing damage to the city. So it's not Gilgamesh who says that to her. And I think that's key because it indicates a certain kind of relationship to authority that he has to figure out how to mediate for himself. That two-thirds a god, one-third a mortal line has always interested me as well you know the genetics of it don't make any sense at all so it has to be some kind of symbolic proportion right so that two-thirds rather than even just a half or one-third a god makes him arrogant and hubristic but and overwhelms we might say his mortal half so that he's not able to see it but it is there and he recognizes in the beginning of the epic that human beings don't last forever therefore let's engage in glorious deeds and secure our fame and it's only when he really understands the meaning of death through his friend that he begins to understand that human side of himself and that the human side of himself will in fact always win out over the divine side of him by leading him to death. The gods are um, angry that, uh, that Gilgamesh and Enkidu killed the bull of heaven. And they say one of, one of the two of them has to die. They choose Enkidu and he basically gets sick and dies almost immediately. He has a brief time to say goodbye. 
Gilgamesh mourns his friend. He's very he's very upset to miss his friend. But in some ways, he's even more upset by the fact that his friend's death has awakened in himself his own sense of mortality. He keeps saying, must uh, Gilgamesh be this way too? He talks about the Inkadu's decomposing body, and he realizes that's going to be him one of these days, and he becomes obsessed with this idea uh, of, of death and wants to know if there's absolutely no way to thwart that. There's there's some possible way to 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 challenge that. And that conflict that, that or, or that that desire, that quest for some way to prevent his own death actually <laughs> makes up the largest body of this epic. That's right. It starts out with these grand mythological figures and a larger than life hero who doesn't seem to be aware of any of his limitations. And, and now we're, we're stuck with a guy who's basically, you know, it's, it's, it's turned into white noise by Don DeLillo all at once where it's going to be this psychological investigation of what uh, death anxiety is like. Well, as soon as that two thirds God is stripped away from him and he comes to recognize that all that gives him is these superpowers that are never able to prevent his death, it, they become irrelevant to him. And the, the lines that I always thought was so striking is um, when he's describing the his experience to Siduri, the tavern keeper at the edge of the world. And he says, seven days and sat, seven nights, I sat beside the body. That's the body of Enkidu, weeping for Enkidu beside the body. And then I saw a worm fall out of his nose. Must I die too? Must, Enk- must Gilgamesh be like that? And I just thought that that's such a striking detail. If you were a filmmaker, there'd be this medium range shot of of Gilgamesh sitting by the body mourning for his friend. And then this extreme close up of a worm crawling out and falling out of Enkidu's nose and Gilgamesh's horror at this. And why? Why is Gilg? He's really traumatized. He has PTSD about the 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 decaying of his friend's body and this emergence of a worm, the lowliest of creatures, right? That is living. That is living from the body of his friend and and reducing his friend to clay. And triumphing, a lowly worm triumphing over the glorious Enkidu. Well, that passage is is repeated word for word like three times uh, as as Gilgamesh goes and 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 meets other people, and it's a it's a fairly long sequence of uh, of of verses. So, and it it's it's a it's actually quite uh, powerful that that it's it's being repeated so 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 often 
as you mentioned before, the end of the uh, epic repeats lines from the beginning of the epic. There's uh, in, in the beginning when uh, Enkidu and uh, Gilgamesh are setting out on their, their quest, Gilgamesh keeps having dreams and, and the exact same sequence of events happens. He sleeps till midnight. He wakes up. He says, was there, what was the disturbance? Was there a God that went through the camp and, Enkidu interprets his dream and it, it, it's it's um it's clear that repetition is uh cl- is crucial to the poetic of course in English we're taught you don't repeat the same word that's not quite true and I'll 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 say a little bit I again I'm not an expert as well but it's certainly the case in Greek epic poetry that various Elements are repeated regularly. Rosy-fingered dawn, wine-dark sea, um, things like that. Now, right, but in, in in Homer, isn't that the 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 Homeric epithet? It's like a a descriptor for each character in turn, and it's a sort of a it's sort of like a, a way to to flag. Okay, here comes Athena because we're going to talk about her flashing eyes. You know, every time she shows up um, and it's also uh, a mnemonic device for people who are trying to uh, speak these things aloud. I don't you know, I, I have no sense of whether this was a whether Gilgamesh was something that was uh, memorized and, 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 and read aloud. But it, look, I think in Greece, there were people whose profession it was to memorize the epic poems and other poems as well and to recite them at events and to be paid for that and to earn renown for that and so part of the oral tradition of epic poetry was to have these kind of uh repeat passages that would be more than just an epithet like rosy fingered dawn it would be several lines that would repeat and what some have theorized is exactly what you said is that that would allow the performer a break because they could sort of put their mind on autopilot as they were speaking those lines and try to remember, well, what's the next segment of the poem poem that I need to be reciting now? Uh, But I think in English, it is true that we're told when we're writing essays or even uh, other forms of writing not to repeat ourselves. If you just think about songwriting, and how there is repetition in songwriting, and how crucial that is to songwriting, it's worth asking why those repetitions are there. Because you could say, well, you've already said that about this character. Why are you saying it again? You said it only 20 seconds ago, or you already gave that line about close your eyes and I'll kiss you tomorrow, I'll miss you. Uh, to quote from a Beatles song. But I think what's important is that an epic poem like a song is told as a story. And 
in the ancient Babylonian culture, very few people would have been literate who would be reading from cuneiform tablets. They would have been speaking these stories out loud and have memorized these stories generation after generation. And what the repetition does in a narrative context is, although the words are the same, the context is different. The song or the story has brought you full circle to a place where that repeated chorus line or that repeated tagline is going to have a new meaning now. So at the beginning of the poem, the epic poem of Gilgamesh, where he where it's said he's the creator of Uruk, look at its walls, look at its temple precincts, and then that's repeated at the end, it has a very different valence at the end. And where Gilgamesh and Enkidu say to each other, two people, companions, together they can prevail. When that's said later by Gilgamesh, he says, two people, companions, and Enkidu is long dead, and he can't even finish the sentence. It means something different in that context. And so I think that's the crucial thing, is that the words stay the same, but the meaning for the listener changes. And that's our experience of our own lives, is that the seasons change, uh, the years go by, but spring means something different when you're 20 than it does when you're 45 and when you're 75. You mentioned before um, the alewife Siduri and, and who has a tavern that's on the edge of the world. The idea of a tavern at the edge of the world or between worlds is such a trope in fantasy and science fiction yes. uh, there's there's lots of 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 variants on that it's um it's 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 kind of wonderful to think that that was uh something that goes all the way back to to gilgamesh um it's a it's a very appealing idea that the, there's some place that you go that you're sort of standing on the precipice of the end of the world and and, and gilgamesh arrives there as he's trying to reach uh the the sole survivor of a a, a great flood who uh, apparently is immortal and he's trying to figure out can can he be immortal like this guy and so he he comes to this place and and it's it's between worlds it's the, the water is that he has to cross is very like the river sticks um and and the other and of course this comes to uh, tablet 11 which uh, apparently caused a huge uh, uproar and commotion when it was uh, translated in, in the 19th century, because this is the tablet in which uh, Gilgamesh does, uh, does visit this survivor. His name is Utnapishtim. Yes. Um, and and Utnapishtim's recollection of the flood is very, very similar. Noah's story of the flood. There's a lot of of parallels from a, a god who tells him that the end of the world is coming. Get 
you know, yourself a boat together, get all your animals so that they'll survive to the point that at the end of the flood, he's letting loose birds to try and determine whether waters have receded from land or not. In the biblical story, Noah sends off a raven who doesn't come back, and then he sends off a dove who does come back with an, an olive leaf. Um, in in this story, he sends off a, a series of birds, and they can't find any place to, to, to land, and so they come back. In this story, it's the raven who's the uh, the good omen. So a lot of people in the 19th century who had to still put a lot of stock in the literal truth of the Bible were scandalized that here was a story apparently from uh, before the, uh, the, the book of, of Genesis um, that tells much the same story. Um, but, but these, these flood stories uh, apparently are very common in the region. They're very common throughout uh, the ancient world. Stories of, of floods, you know, in some ways, Atlantis can be considered a flood story, although it's not clear whether Atlantis really was a myth that was common or was just something that Plato made up as a um, as an example. It suggests a lot of things. You know, you people like to to think, well, maybe there was some sort of a um, collective memory. Of, of of something that was actually a great flood. I know that some people speculate that well, it was the end of the Ice Age. That seems a little too pat to me. But but obviously, if you live in a place like uh, the Fertile Crescent, flooding uh, is is a is a real danger. And if your if your world is defined by this small city state that you live in for all you know the whole world has been destroyed whenever there's a big flood i think that's absolutely right so both in the nile delta region and in the euphrates you could well imagine that there would be occasional great floods that would destroy whole cities and as far as the inhabitants of that place are concerned, that would be the destruction of the world. The version of this that I've heard is that at the very end of the Ice Age, uh, the Black Sea had contained a much larger body of ocean and that that broke through um, into the lower uh, near Asian world and created a, a truly massive flood. But I don't think one has to hypothesize about that to understand that for people of those times, floods were civilization ending events as far as their own local communities would have understood and that this would have been a, a common uh local experience that would have found its way into mythmaking. So it, it's certainly the case that the Mesopotamian stories of the flood and of a figure, Utnapishtim, who survives the flood, predate the Hebrew Bible versions of that. And that was scandalizing for 19th century biblical literalists. There are very interesting differences between Utnapishtim and Noah. First of all, Noah tries his best to save his fellow people, but they, they uh, 
they excoriate him and ridicule him. Whereas Utnapishtim, quite frankly, uh, manipulates and exploits his fellow citizens and lies to them about what's going to happen. And there's something unappealing about Utnapishtim. And he wins immortality by failing to be a truly good shepherd to his community by actually doing the noble thing and doing everything he can to save them. And one of the lessons of the Gilgamesh saga could be that Gilgamesh comes to understand that in order to achieve his personal immortality, he would have to renounce that part of him which is human, which is there to care about his own people. And that Enkidu had reminded him of as his deepest obligation. And so his friendship to Enkidu is tied to recalling that he has an obligation to something beyond himself. And I think that's part of his ultimate recognition of Ishtar as this goddess of love and fertility and being bound to the human cycle of life, procreation, and death that ultimately tames him and reconciles him to his own mortality. So I, I think there's some other really interesting things. We talked much earlier about the sex magic of this uh, of this epic, once Enkidu has had sexual relations uh, with Shamhat and he's been awed by it, he then becomes a defender of women against Gilgamesh. And there are these very touching scenes between Enkidu and Shamhat that she divides her cloak and gives him half. She leads him by the hand as a goddess would to bring him into connection with other human beings. And it's really striking that after Gilgamesh wrestles with Enkidu, he embraces him, he kisses him and walks with him hand in hand, just as uh, she had walked with Enkidu. So, and there's this mysterious passage again that I alluded to at the beginning of the poem, where it says that no one could withstand the aura and the power of Gilgamesh. Neither the father's son, nor the wife of the noble, neither the mother's daughter, nor the warrior's bride was safe. You know, you can interpret that, that Gilgamesh is a bisexual figure, right? Right. Uh, and, you know, you could also say, well, his aura is, you know, a, a kind of erotic aura that brings the the nobleman's son to him as a leader into war, but the text doesn't make that clear. And it's really interesting that Gil Gilgamesh's sexual focus is taken away from the young bride 
and put onto Enkidu. And there's no indication that they have a sexual relationship, but there is an eroticization where Gilgamesh's entire erotic life is now focused on his friendship with Enkidu rather than on the the women and the young men of his own people. Enkidu becomes this kind of healthy erotic distraction as well as attraction for Gilgamesh. And I think that's also part of his education by Ishtar that is part of the civilizing influence of friendship and learning how to redirect erotic longing into something more constructive than deformative sexual relations, which is what Enkidu had been, excuse me, what Gilgamesh had been engaged to before. I appreciate what you're saying here about the continued education of um, of Gilgamesh. It feels like he has to keep learning things throughout this this poem. Although by the end, I kind of you kind of despair of of you know he's such a he's such a of lunkhead. You know he he goes to the end of the world. He he meets. Um, uh, Utnapishtim immediately. Utnapishtim, you know, starts talking in a passage that sounds very much like the Book of Ecclesiastes about how nothing is nothing lasts forever. Everything is transient. He's, he talks about how long does a building stand before it falls? How long does a contract last? How long will brothers share their inheritance before they quarrel? How long does hatred, for that matter, last? Here's this guy who can live forever, or who in, in some ways is, is cursed to live forever. He's in this indeterminate place outside of the world. And the minute Gilgamesh you know, tells his fear of death to him, Udnapishtim is like, you know, forget that. Enjoy your life that you've got. And, and of course, Gilgamesh is not happy with this. So Udnapishtim does the second best thing he can, which is he tells Gilgamesh how to get himself a uh, a plant uh, that, that will that will cause him to be young again, um, which Gilgamesh does. He's very happy about this, but <laughs> you know, kind of a almost an aside. He sets the plant down, and a snake eats it, um, <laughs> which makes me laugh every time I read this. It's just the way in which it's 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 sort of dealt with anticlimactically by the by the writer. Well, he's a bit of a lunkhead. No, he's he's a bro. <laughs> he, he just he isn't thinking it through, and he he's he's so entitled. He thinks that once he has it, he's going to get to keep it and not have to watch over it. It, it is very striking, and it is really interesting, right? So, in the the Hebrew Bible, Adam and Eve also lose immortality through the agency of a snake and a plant, right? It, it's another remarkable parallel. Of course, it's a, there are really important differences in the story, but it's not disobedience that leads to Gilgamesh's downfall. It's just <laughs> carelessness. 
which is very, very striking. And I'm not sure what to say about that symbolically. The whole epic, if it if it has a unified uh, message, it's 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 the the Rolling Stones. You can't always get what you want. <laughs> it's 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 about Gilgamesh learning his limitations and. <laughs> And, and 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 he he's ferried back, you know, he doesn't even try to get another another plant. You know, that was that's the first thing I was like, is there only one of these? Is he you know, he does he he just kind of gives up and and he goes home and he feels like that's it. But when he comes back to Uruk, as you mentioned before, he 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 again praises the city and takes a lot of pride in in what has been accomplished there. And this is going to have to be it for him. This is going to have to be what his immortality is, that he ultimately uh, was the architect for this miraculous uh, fortified city. Um, and and, 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 and the, the, that's where it seems to end. It's partly because it's, it's repeating uh, lines from the beginning. It feels like an ending uh, to me. So, if there if there actually were another uh uh tablet that was supposed to continue the narrative i'd be very surprised um but there is another tablet there's this tablet 12 which seems to be a completely different story that is a sort of an appendix and it's also very closely related to its sumerian source and it's about uh it's about uh Enkidu going to the underworld, sort of, and, and again, another, another uh, Orpheus analogy. <laughs> like Orpheus, he's told what he has to not do to get out of there safe. And of course, he does it and he gets stuck in the underworld. And it, it, it kind of ends with Gilgamesh talking to the ghost of uh, Enkidu. And Enkidu basically says, you know, the afterlife isn't bad if you have a lot of sons. <laughs> he's sort of like he says, like the guy who has no sons, he's got a lousy afterlife, and the guy who has got one son, he's not got like a not a great afterlife. But but the people who have two or three or four, they've got it going on in the in in the um, the afterlife. So it seems, uh, in some ways, like a, a a PSA for have a big family. Yeah, I just. I think that that's simply an artifact of the fact that there were centuries of stories being told about Gilgamesh and Enkidu. And you're going to have pieces of different versions of the story and pieces of parts of it from elsewhere that won't fit together in some completely coherent whole, but do fit together in the cultural context that we can't con reconstruct anymore. Uh, I wanted to say something about two points uh, that you brought up before. One was about Utnapishtim. And you mentioned that Utnapishtim's immortality is a kind of punishment. And I think there's real textual evidence for that. And it's in the fourth portion of Tablet 11. And he says, uh, 
when he's it's at the end of Utnapishtim's own adventure. And he says that the God Enlil took me by the hand and made me kneel. He took my wife by the hand and made her kneel. The God then touched our foreheads, blessing us and said, you were but human. Now you are admitted to the company of the gods. Your dwelling place shall be the faraway, the place which is the source of the outflowing of all the rivers of the world there are. And I just cannot help seeing that as so ironic as to be sarcastic and a punishment. This man whose life was defined by a flood that destroyed his home is being put to live for all eternity at the source of all waters. Right? <laughs> there's something, there's a cruel irony to that. And there, another point about Gilgamesh's own trajectory and his own development that I think one cannot overlook, and it's right there at the beginning of the text, it says, the story of him who knew the most of all men know, who made the journey, heartbroken, reconciled, who knew the way things were before the flood, the secret things, the mystery, who went to the end of the earth and over, who returned, and, and wrote the story on a tablet of stone. So one of Gilgamesh's accomplishments, and one might argue his greatest accomplishment, is that he himself was the author of the Epic of Gilgamesh. Right? There's a little weirdness here. There's this sort of meta narrative that Gilgamesh wrote the story, and yet now we're telling a story about him having written the story. So which story is it that we're getting? Is this a retelling of an already told tale? But the fact is that Gilgamesh not only creates the city of Uruk, not only comes to recognize his most important role is as a shepherd and protector of the city of Uruk, he comes to understand that the story of his own adventure is the most lasting thing that he can give as a shepherd to his people. And he writes it on a tablet of stone to endure. I think that's crucial. That's part of his heroism. And since we're mentioning heroism, I think... I don't know if you've read um, Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Um, I have not, but I have read enough excerpts that I feel like I've read. All right. So uh, for your for your listeners, Joseph Campbell had this theory that there's a a kind of or myth, a meta myth, the foundational myth that is the source of all myth making and all story making the the hero's journey. The monomyth, he calls it. And the hero's journey is very simple in its basic architecture. And it's explained right here at the beginning of the first story we have ever passed down in, in human culture. It's exactly this. Who went to the end of the earth and over and returned. 
the monomyth is always a story of a hero who departs from ordinary human existence, who makes a journey beyond that ordinary human existence, who learns something and brings it back, who returns to their community and shares that newfound knowledge in a way that is constructive, even rejuvenative for their home community. And Gilgamesh is a model for that, of departure, journey, and return. And we see that in so many stories. It's there in Plato, in the myth of the cave, of the philosopher who leaves the cave, emerges into the light, and then returns to the cave with this newfound knowledge to lead the people therein. It's the story of Christ who dies and endures the journey into heaven to return again to his followers and bring them the news of everlasting life. And again and again, we see this story and it's right there at the very beginning of all storytelling and all myth making. Well, I, I like I like Joseph Campbell. I like I like the 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 sort of Jungian approach to folklore. But I have to say, I, I still blame Joseph Campbell for <laughs> uh, what became of George Lucas. Well, let me just say something about that. Right. Yeah. I think is if you start with the desire to create a myth for the sake of creating a myth that's going to misfire. You have to have a, your own reason, just like Gilgamesh has a reason to write it upon tablets of stone. He had a reason because he underwent this experience. He had a story to tell. If you, if you start it from the premise of, I want to make a myth, I've got to do something heroic with my myth. That's not going to cut it. It has to come from the heart of lived experience. You know, reading it through this time, I, I, I was struck once again by something that one of my history professors, Bruce Shulman, said, which is that a lot of times when people approach history, they try to approach it through the lens of what is still relevant for us today. There's an attempt to make a, a strong connection with the events of the past and contextualize them in our own experience. And he said, that he invited us as we read through history to uh, dwell on how strange it is and how different it is from our own experience. And um, reading Gilgamesh through this time, I was struck by how both are true at once. It is in some ways uh, a, an almost indescribably strange story that has uh, motivations and passages that, I've read through several times now and still make no sense to me. Um, it has, it has literally uh, passages whose meanings are unknown to us. And yet it is also a deeply human and personal experience that I think anyone uh, in any age of, of, of history could relate to. So you get best, the best of both worlds. 
I agree with you about that. I would make two observations. One is that the very question of unknown meanings is addressed by the Epic of Gilgamesh when Gilgamesh has his dreams and Enkidu is there to interpret them. And the dreams look really bad. And Enkidu gives them these very positive interpretations that are really quite implausible. And then Gilgamesh himself is no longer able to make sense of his own dreams when he no longer has a companion. And I do think that that's an important part, again, of this epic, that there are things we don't understand all the time, but we need our companions to make sense of the world with us. And we, when we are not engaged in that effort to make sense of the unknown with one another, the world becomes overwhelming and leads us into despair. And I'll say one more thing about the contemporary relevance of the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's obvious that one key feature, thematic feature of the Epic of Gilgamesh is the attempt to achieve immortality and how that attempt is doomed. We are again on the threshold of that attempt. There are billionaires in Silicon Valley now who are investing billions of dollars with very serious scientists in an attempt to cure death. And they actually believe, and they have not crazy reasons to believe, that they will be able to achieve that by either figuring out how to shut off the body's own self-destructive uh, ingrained programming or by figuring out ways to manipulate the genetic code so that the body will replenish us, replenish itself without doing what it naturally does, which is to begin to fall into obsolescence, or even by doing things like figuring out ways to uh, transfer our consciousness into a non-organic uh, container. People are taking this seriously and spending very big money on it. Just like Gilgamesh took the possibility of finding immortality very, very seriously and spending all of his resources on it. Only to have those robbed from him by a snake in the last moment. I think we're going to find that whenever we try to do this, even with our own modern scientific sophistication, the snake will always come and steal it from us in the end. Uh, maybe that's just my, my jealousy of the wealth of these people who may in fact succeed in making themselves not truly immortal because they know they can also die through accident or disease, but semi-immortal in that they want to have a form of life that could be enduring as long as they don't have accidents. 
but I think there's something deeply hubristic about that, that human beings both yearn for, but ultimately have to learn how to live with their own mortality, just as Gilgamesh did. So this epic is as meaningful now as it was 4,000 years ago when it was first being told. Thanks again to my co-host, Gregory Freed. Sophomore Lit is brought to you by The Incomparable Network. Find more funny, smart podcasts online at theincomparable.com. You can write the show at sophomore.literature at gmail.com, or you can join the discussion on either the Facebook page or the Incomparable membership Slack. Thank you so much for having me join you today, John. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, it's been great too. And uh, and, and thanks for, for ending on an up note. <laughs>